0: Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. We are very excited to have this week Dr. Lawrence Ralph. Uh, professor of Anthropology at Princeton University and the co-director of the Center for Transnational Policing. Uh, really one of the foremost experts on race, policing, democracy, um, urban violence uh, in Chicago, the United States, and globally. So we're really thrilled to have him here. Um, welcome, Dr. Ralph. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I really want a conversation today about Uh, your research, your work. I'm a big fan of your first book, which is this extraordinary book called Renegade Dreams, Living Through Injury in Gangland, Chicago. And you're trained as an anthropologist, but when I read this, I mean, I think it reads both as history, it reads as anthropology, it reads as sociology, it reads as contemporary journalism and affairs. And um, I think this book, which looked at black gang members living Uh, on the west side of Chicago after being injured, after being shot, and looking at this term injury capaciously is really, really important as part of this broader literature on mass incarceration and sort of transforming and reforming the criminal justice system. So I want to talk a little bit about Renegade Dreams, but I also want to talk about you and the research that you're doing and sort of the implications of that research, uh, not just for public policy, but also for how do we uh, look um, interdisciplinarity uh, wise about the criminal justice system, policing, race, um, and where do we go from here in terms of um, 2019?
1: Yeah, man, I think that's an important important question, and I think the interdisciplinary approach that I try to take is really honed in at answering particular questions that uh, try to go against the carceral logic. So I'm glad you mentioned mass incarceration. We think about the carceral logic. It has a way of um, decontextualizing, dehistoricizing people, and so people are the person who committed this crime at this particular moment, and then they are subject to the long arm of the law. They're subject to mass incarceration because they uh, violated this law, right? Whether it be fines, whether it be marijuana, whether it be murder, right? But we don't think about how these particular laws uh, come into place, how they come into being, the history of them, the history of policing. And I think when we think about that, we go against the uh, taking out of context, the decontextualization, and I think it is a kind of historicization we begin to historicize. We begin to think about, okay, what put these people in this particular place in a position in which they're vulnerable? Mm -hmm. And when I say vulnerability, I mean that they are disproportionately subject to something like mass incarceration, or they're disproportionately subject to be shot and have to live with a paralyzing injury for the rest of their lives? Why do they all live the same way? Mm-hmm. And so when we think about that question, why is it in particular black people from particular neighborhoods who are suffering from particular effects, then that that's a question of history. And I think anthropology and sociology come in when we think about How do they make meaning of their lives within this context, within the history they find themselves?
0: And what gets me very excited about your work and your research, I think you really fill in the blanks of some of this literature. When I think about um, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, and she talks about how it's easy to love the innocent and innocent black people. but well, you look at people who are guilty, people who have actually committed the crimes um, that they might've been charged with, but also are victims at the same time of both, um, at times gangland violence, but police violence and have been dehumanized. And you ask us to look at people who might be, in quotes, guilty of some criminal offense, but what is the humanity behind that person? And I think about your work, I think about Danielle Allen's uh, book, Cuz, I think about uh, James Foreman's Pulitzer Prize winning Locking Up Our Own. And I think in so many ways, your book um, and your work uh, really um, provides and fills in gaps um, in this literature of, of, of mass incarceration.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that would be the bridge between, I think, my first book and uh, the book project that I'm ratchet, rap, wrapping up now called The Torture Letters, in which we're really thinking about This process of criminalization and the process of criminalization is not only um, convicting someone of a crime, but it's also what comes along with that, the dehumanization that comes along with that, the dehumanization of the person who is then subject to um, horrific conditions uh, of being locked up. If we think of Khalif Browder or something like that, Um, conditions that Make mental illness a real uh, possibility, but also has an effect on the way that we see the criminal and the way we see that person and the the way that we mobilize around them or not. And I think, you know, Black Lives Matter has been important for for helping us kind of rethink uh, the the politics of innocence and in where we have to have the perfect victim in order to make claims of justice. Um, but really, we, day in and day out, live with these processes by which people are labeled criminal, criminal, and because of that label, they are afforded less rights, less respect, and less empathy, and we have to deal with that.
0: Um, I want you to talk about the torture letters Um, Because this is, you know, I think about Bryan Stevenson and Just Mercy. I think about, you know, your work in the torture letters in terms of Chicago and and terror and mental and physical uh, health of black bodies. Um, What is the torture letters about? And why is it so important that we find out about the city of Chicago basically running (laughs) a torture center um, out of its police department for decades?
1: Yeah, well, the torture letters is a it's in part a social history about torture in the city and uh, how much torture has had a, a role in the city. It, it begins with the case of Andrew Wilson, who was uh, convicted of murdering a police officer in 1982, and he was uh, tortured while in police custody. And Wilson was the first person to file a civil suit against the city of Chicago claiming that his constitutional rights had been violated. And a lot of people dismissed uh, Wilson's claims at first and dismissed him as a person because he was accused of this horrific crime of killing police officers. And so the jury in his first civil suit even found that, you know, on the one hand, his his rights might have been violated, but they weren't going to hold the police officers accountable because... You know, they were just acting out of rage an understandable, justifiable rage for this horrific act. But if we think about the other people who had also been tortured that we didn't know about um, that came out as a result of the evidence amassed in the Wilson case, we see that this was an expansive problem already in the 1980s that had been going back 10 years prior to the point now that we know at least... 125 people were tortured during that 20-year period while in police custody. And that's a conservative estimation. So I move out from those initial cases to look at how torture is impacting the city now, how people are still victimized using the same methods, using the same tactics, and how it's not just John Burge, the, the police officer who was connected with these 125 cases and connected with Andrew Wilson's torture. But since then, there have been also other police officers tied with other histories of torture that extend to Guantanamo Bay. So I, f- I extend and I follow the tentacles of these tortures operations and see how it's impacting the city, but see how as well, if we don't look at it, how it becomes a transnational concern, how it really con- becomes a concern for how we think about democracy.
0: How can this be happening in this day and age in terms of, you know, 2019? But you you said that this started in the early 1970s all the way up into the 1990s. um, First civil suit was filed by this this Andrew Wilson. How can this happen and how can we end it?
1: I think it happens in very concrete ways. You know, it happens because... um, People have careers in law enforcement in which they move up the ranks in which they want to protect the police officers that they're serving with. And so torture at a particular precinct can become an open secret. And then it happens at another level because the district attorneys can know about it and and not recognize claims of torture. When somebody comes to them and says, I've been tortured in police custody, they can disbelieve that person because of who they are. And later that district attorney can become the mayor or that district attorney can become a judge. And so the secrecy happens at another level. Mm -hmm. And as time goes on, people still have interest in maintaining that secret. Not only that, they become more powerful. So they are more effectively able to contain that secret, which allows it to happen. So what we're really talking about, is no mechanism for accountability. And that's how torture uh, proliferates. There's no internal mechanism for accountability, either at the state level or at the wider municipal government level. And because of that, to the public, it doesn't exist. It only exists through the stories of the torture survivors and the people who care about them. And so I think that's part of the reason why, as a populace, as a country, we have to care about the, the victimized. You know, whether they're supposedly guilty or not, we have to care about what they say they've been through. And we have to um, try to hold people accountable for that, despite, despite that. How did the torture
0: of the victims in Chicago impact families and a wider network of communities in Chicago?
1: Well, it's been hallmark in that regard, and, and that's part of the reason that that drew me to the book. Actually, I started kind of bit by bit collecting information on the torture cases in the early 2000s. and In 2006, I started. Uh, and over that time, I, I grew very discouraged uh, because in 2010... John Burge, the police officer associated with this torture, was tried and convicted of perjury and obstruction of justice, and he went to jail for about three years. But this was a torturer who went to jail for three years, and the reason why he couldn't be tried for torture was because the statute of limitations passed. And so after he tortured Andrew Wilson, uh, the governor at that time put into legislation uh, a statute of limitations, right? So the travesty was that he had been tried too late. The, the torture had come to light too late, not that somebody was victimized because of the torture. And so, you know, counterintuitively, the fact that birds could only be tried for perjury and lying uh disheartened me about the 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 Um, potential for real justice and real change. So, you know, I kind of got disillusioned with with the project. But then in 2015, um, the survivors of of torture wanted reparations from the city, a reparations judgment. And what was interesting about that is- How much was that judgment? Uh, well, it was holistic. So on the one hand, it was $5.5 million for the torture survivors, 57 torture survivors. But on the other hand, it was way more expensive than that because it included um, job programs, it included uh, higher education for torture survivors and their families, it included counseling for the torture survivors and their family, and included the um, building of a Chicago Torture Justice Center where anybody who has been victim of police violence can go and receive counseling, and a lot of torture survivors work there now. And it included um, a a judgment that the history of the Chicago uh, torture cases would be taught in the middle school and high school level in Chicago. So that's really
0: important because In a way, this judgment's almost like a truth and reconciliation when I think about South Africa and sort of never forgetting and trying to institutionalize at least the history of racial apartheid in South Africa, something we've never done in the United States when we think about both the history of racial slavery and Jim Crow and contemporary racism. We've never sort of tried to repair that breach, whatever we're going to call it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, as educators, as professors, you know, that, that call to educate the public is really uh something that's inspiring. And so I was I was really inspired by that and I was inspired by uh the possibility that it could reach a new generation and the need I was inspired by the need for tortured survivors to want their what happened to them to be known, uh to, to the new generation because it's really sacrificial in saying that, you know. Even though it's happened to me, this this could happen to you too. You're vulnerable, and therefore you need to know about about this history.
0: And I want to talk about the vulnerability because you you do this in Renegade Dreams, and I'm sure you do in the Torture Letters too. Why, why what, what about the black bodies? Because we think about Ta-Nehisi Coates and this whole literature, and it, Coates is taking from queer theory and uh, you know you know black literary theory and black critical and cultural race theory, talking about bodies and black bodies being uh, raped, uh, marginalized, killed, murdered, Um, and black bodies even after the civil rights era, after the black power era, after Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, when there's supposed to be citizenship and equality, we see, you know, so many are caught up in the logic, as you call it, of the carceral state. So many are caught up in terms of... Impoverished neighborhoods, segregated ghettos, uh, poorly equipped schools, unemployed, um, having mental health problems. Why are black bodies so vulnerable when i when I hear you talk about one hundred and twenty five torture victims in Chicago, and then when I remember reading i reading Renegade dreams and seeing these these black bodies that are broken but resilient is what I take from that book. Why are black bodies so vulnerable to the large logic of the carceral state and all this marginalization and all this really like your second book is saying torture.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we have to think about what, um, debilitating the black body has allowed, uh, in terms of, um, American notions of security and safety and how governance is premised in a way of defending, uh, certain people against a supposed threat. You know, we could think about that, not just in terms of black people and black bodies, but also we could think about that in terms of the border now and the rhetoric that goes on about the border, the very racialized rhetoric about the impending threat uh, that uh, so-called open border uh, uh, elicits. Uh, But, I think it has a particular history when we talk about black people and the black body. And so, you know, I, I thought long and hard about how to talk about torture, you know, because on the one hand, it can go into almost like a, a pornography of violence, certain scholars have called it, in which you're just rehashing these these ideas of pain um, and instances of, of horrific pain. Uh, but... I, I also wanted to honor kind of what the torture survivors had been through and part of what even made the torture survivors legible to each other are particular marks that happened on their bodies because of particular instruments for, that, that were used on them by police officers. And so without that, without the pictures of that, um, a lot of these torture survivors wouldn't be able to make claims uh, and some sort of survivors still can't make claims because their bodies aren't marked in a particular way. And so I wanted to think about what had to be said about the body, but how it also relates to humanity and how people aren't reducible to the marks on their body, but um, indicative of a wider uh, form of humanity that the torture cases also show us, also tells us, through the way in which, um, through all these years, you know, on the one hand, it's been an open secret. On the other hand, there's always been activist communities saying that people have been tortured. Listen up, and it's happened. And people have been more or less willing to listen up at particular times in history. And so, um, at the time of um, Bush's uh, war on terror, where where um, we have Abu Ghraib and we have. Uh, more attention to torture. We have a heightened awareness of what's happening in Chicago at the time of Guantanamo Bay. We have a heightened awareness of what's happening in Chicago. And so I think this is also important of connecting us to a wider community of injustice in which the U.S. and the U.S. law enforcement is also implicated in these other things that are happening globally. So there's w- ways in which we have to talk about certain things in order to kind of see the dots, see the connections.
0: And I want to talk about those global connections and the work that you've been doing both in New Orleans, um, you've been to Geneva, just, just all over about policing and violence. And really, you know, when I read and think about Angela Davis and this idea of ab- abolishing prisons, um, people oftentimes don't talk about, well, what are we to do with the police um, and policing, and and what what purpose does police do the police serve, especially in poor black communities? And so I wanted to talk to you about. I know you're doing work uh, in New Orleans, and New Orleans is one of the cities that had a consent degree with the with the Justice Department. What's the role of policing here? You know, let's go outside of not just Chicago, but the function of the police. And why are police viewed in so many poor Black communities as potentially the enemy? You know, we're going back... Way to the Black Panther days of the 1960s, yeah. but when we go when we think about Baltimore a few years ago, when we think about Ferguson, Missouri, and police in, in military vests and with tanks, um, what 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 is the role of the police uh, in these black communities and can it be transformed um, to to be positive and progressive? Can we have a police force that's interested in racial justice?
1: Yeah, I mean <laughs> One could hope, you know. What I mean, I think that I think that when we think about the what you're really getting us to is the question of reform versus abolition, right? And there's a a wide spectrum uh, in between reform and abolition, and I think that it's important to look comparatively within the U.S. but also globally in order for us to think about this, right? And so, you know, I have pro- uh, uh, projects on policing in in Chicago where there's a strong activist community and where abolition is actively talked about in in relationship to how we should think about policing. In New Orleans, abolition is not something that people talk about, all right? Um, so and by
0: abolition,
1: let's tell our listeners we mean... We mean a kind of dismantling the police along with the prisons, just saying that we don't, need the police to to govern our streets. And so, in New Orleans, people can't imagine a world in which they don't have the police, right? And and so, how as a scholar, how do we think about that? Like, on the one hand, we could just say that, well, they just don't know, they haven't come into awareness yet. They, you know, we should advocate for abolition. But as an anthropologist, I really take seriously where people are and what they're saying in terms of their interventions. And I think they're saying a lot of nuanced things that lead us to different ways that we can think about policing too that are are commensurate with what people in Chicago are saying. And so I think part of what everybody is saying is that the police police as an institution are doing way too much, right? They're giving fines in Ferguson. They're uh, also um, acting as the National Guard, uh, like as a militarized presence in Ferguson. Um, they're implicated in, in mass incarceration everywhere, but they're not equipped to address things like mental health crises, and they're and people do have real needs, and they need to call on a body to help them through certain things. Um, so are you
0: saying we need less police, we need we need social workers, we need mental
1: health counselors
0: th- that are active in communities in times of crisis, but also just normatively?
1: Yes, I'm saying we need other in- institutions that are able to fill that void that the police are filling with uh, criminalizing tactics. And violence. And violence, right? And so, um, all communities can benefit from that. And I think even police recognize that they're not equipped to do certain things. So I think of creating more uh, humanizing spaces entails that we think about what the police are, what they do, what they're trained to do, what they're qualified to do uh, and, in relationship to what communities need, right? And we can't say that the answer for communities is to lock everybody up, right? Uh, We said that once and it's not working. And I think on a large scale, um, there's agreement that that project hasn't worked. And so we need to think about what will work and recognize that the police is not equipped to help us get to that next stage and get to that next level of what will work.
0: And So when you think about the implications for your work, um, where do we go from here in the context of you know consent decrees in the consent in the context of you know post Ferguson post Michael Brown we have Black Lives Matter as a movement um, there was just federal legislation signed by the president of the United States that did reduce um, some levels of incarceration at at least at the federal level that's supposed to be um, um, some kind of model and people are talking about even more comprehensive uh, mass incarceration reform where do we go from here and. What's the role, how would you ideally envision sort of policing, uh, racial justice, uh, violence in the 21st um, century as you're doing your your research, both in Chicago, New Orleans, and just globally?
1: Yeah, as I'm doing my research, I have to think about what's constant within these processes that are taking place. And so what I see is a, a common theme of criminalization that leads us to not care about the people who are being affected and to uh, allow anything to happen to them, make it permissible f- for anything to happen to them because we don't care, right? And so I think that uh, in a fractured society, and our society is becoming more fractured, um, there's a way in which that isolation, those fractures be- can become weaponized at particular moments, and historically it's been against people of color, Uh, but you can always find another group to criminalize and therefore implement uh, policies that uh, go against their interests, right, and thus then compromise democracy uh, or compromise how we govern. And so I think, particularly as a cultural anthropologist, I think we have to think about that process of criminalization in relationship to how we govern in relationship to the law. And we have to disentangle and dismantle um, the process by which we make certain groups criminal through the law. And then we use that label to then justify harsh governing that disproportionately impacts those groups, right? And I think we can't just see that as a detriment to those groups who are affected, we have to see that as a detriment to society as a whole, and as a and as a uh, a whittling away of human resources that can help improve our society.
0: And my final question is: How can we convince white Americans, white politicians, um, along with people of color, who I think a lot of people of color have gotten the message that this kind of um, torturing of black bodies? Uh, has a negative effect on the wider, um, both system of American democracy, but these ideas of citizenship, equality, freedom that we tout as Americans, but then also globally, they are also very, very destabilizing for the health of the of the world. Um, how how can we, you know, because you're using, you're doing all the studies, you're getting the data, you're having the experiences, writing the books. But how can we convince people that this is the right side of history?
1: Yeah, I think we have to break some familiar narratives. I think we have to break the narrative that this was an injustice that people overcame. And now uh, we as a country are better because they overcame it. I think that we have to look at the way that um, systems that we rely on in this country are intended to criminalize people and are intended to produce these results. And it will happen, it will always happen. There will always be people who are tortured that we don't know about if the system continues to work as it is. So we can't see this as some uh, heroic overcoming for those people who finally get a modicum of the justice they deserved, but we have to see it as a fundamental issue with how we govern in society and think about why it is allowed to happen and what's preventing it from happening again, right? If the system hasn't changed, then nothing is preventing it from happening again. Nothing is preventing uh, torture from happening in another city, right? So we can't vilify either the supposed criminal or even the torturer. right? As somebody who is just exceptionally horrible, we have to look at the system that allowed that person to torture without sanction till this day. In Chicago, we have reparations for torture survivors and we can say, wow, this is the first time that people have gotten reparations. Uh, But on the other hand, there's still never been a police officer who has been convicted of torture. So we have the admission that torture has existed and has happened, but we don't have torturers. We have torture without torturers. How can that be, right? It can be because we are afraid to look at the system and, and really do the work of fundamentally changing how we govern in society, and that's what it will take.
0: Wow, <laughs> thank you. Uh, that's a great final summation. Uh, Dr. Lawrence Ralph, uh, professor of anthropology at Princeton University and the co-director of the Center for Transnational Policing. Uh, We've had a great conversation on race, democracy, uh, policing, and police violence. And I can't wait to have you back on Race and Democracy when your new book, The Torture Letters, uh, comes out in
1: the fall. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to
0: this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L. J-O-S-E-P-H and our website csrd.lbj.utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.